This is the Country Hour on ABC Radio. Welcome to the Country Hour. It's Thursday, the 18th of January. I'm Josh Becker. Great to have your company today. In the next hour, land prices were in the doldrums in 2023 and for many farmers, a real frustration that prices weren't reflected at the supermarket. Well, it looks like that's starting to turn around in the sale yards this year. Look, let's go pre-Christmas. Pre-Christmas, a lot of lamb selling, you know, carcass weight, $5. It was hard to get more than 120 for a heavy lamb, 120, 130 in Gippsland. Um, with $5 a kilo to $5.50 being about the range. Uh, we get past Christmas and, um, you know, now we're seeing lambs making $7 to $7.40 or $50, um, which is certainly a, it's a good result from where we were for sure. And a labour hire firm is being investigated after it owes workers and creditors $28 million. We'll have more on that in about 10 minutes' time. But first today, more than 50 agricultural lobby groups across the full spectrum of farm commodities, including grains, wool, livestock, horticulture, dairy, forestry and seafood, have sent a message to the federal government strongly opposed to the proposed 10% biosecurity tax. A joint letter sent to the Prime Minister Anthony Albert is calling for an immediate and urgent reversal of what they call a fundamentally flawed tax due to be implemented by the 1st of July 2024. Grain Producers CEO Colin Bettles says farmers are already paying through the nose for biosecurity. We already pay enough in existing levies and we think the government uh, has got this policy wrong. It's extremely flawed and there's a lot of inequity to it. So we've got 50 different producer groups from across the spectrum of of the sector, or different sectors, livestock, seafood, forestry, horticulture, and obviously grains. We've co-signed a joint letter to the Prime Minister, and we've included the Ag Minister, Murray Watt, and also the Treasurer, um, and we're asking them to reverse this decision, and farmers are also doing it tough at the moment as well, with the coverage on the cost of uh, living and the supermarket prices. From the government's point of view, it's a user pays. I think that uh, uh, the farm sector is the one that's going to benefit from a stronger, well-funded biosecurity outfit. Uh, What's your response to that view? Saying that producers are beneficiaries, but we know there's a lot of people, for example, in grain production, all the way through to the consumer, say someone paying $15 for a pint of beer in Sydney, who are also beneficiaries. So there's no economic modelling, and that's what our letter has requested of the Treasurer as well. And uh, to say that farmers are the only um, beneficiaries of a strong biosecurity system is disingenuous. I mean, the national economy benefits from grain production, and if we get something like capra beetle, well, no one will be collecting any levies. Farmers have emergency, uh, or grains in particular, we have emergency levies. So there's no economic modelling to really test that, and Productivity Commission report that was released before Christmas uh, said it was a tax and that levies are an inefficient form of revenue collection for the government. Right, OK. And uh, there's also been some push to try and get the shipping industry to pay something. Is that part of the model or, or that's been left out and that's something that could be added in to maybe reduce the cost to farmers? Well, that's been um, in the pipeline with successive governments for six years and, and we've seen nothing. So, so it's not, not part of this model now? No, it was part of the sustainable funding model that was announced in last year's budget, but it hasn't been delivered. What producers have been asking for is for the risk creators to make a contribution to shared responsibility and accountability. They bring these risks in, but they don't pay emergency levies for the ongoing um, eradication and management of biosecurity once we get it. 
like we have seen with the rowers. Grain producer CEO Colin Bettles there. Joe Hall from Wool Producers says the wool industry just does not have any capacity to pay any more levies. We at Wool Producers and along with the other groups um, that are signatories to this letter, uh, we fully understand and appreciate uh, the shared responsibility model of biosecurity. So in terms of producers paying we already do. We pay significant levies both at a state and national level, plus uh, the private investment that producers pay every day to keep their businesses safe um, through biosecurity measures. So we are one beneficiary, but uh, under the National Biosecurity Statement, which is an endorsed document by industry and government, the beneficiaries um, are noted as as the governments, both state and, and federal, uh, obviously industry, research organisations and, and individuals of the general public. So as far as we're concerned, uh, producers are beneficiaries, but we're not the only beneficiaries and we already do con- contribute. So this proposed tax goes against that shared responsibility model. So you think you're being asked to pay too much? Yes, definitely. Uh, Again, under that national biosecurity statement, there are clearly defined roles and responsibilities um, for each of those stakeholders. And if this tax goes forward, as as proposed by the government, for the first time, producers will be paying for the regulatory functions of government, which is not our role to do. That is government's role. So what specifically are wool growers concerned about with this levy? The wool industry is relatively unique in the fact that we're one of the only industries, um, or we are the only industry that sets our research and development levy every three years. Growers get to vote. So wool poll is occurring at the end of this or in the second half of this year. The proposed levy is to be introduced uh, 1st of July. And we don't think it's fair that growers should have to choose between contributing to R&D or contributing to a compulsory levy. So at the end of the day, growers won't make that distinction. They will just see that more money is coming out of their uh, wool checks. We're already paying one of the highest levies in ag. And that's Joe Hall from Wool Producers Australia speaking there to Michael Condon. This is the Country Hour on ABC Radio. A labour hire firm which brings Pacific farm workers to Australia is being investigated after it was revealed it owed $28 million to workers and creditors. Elsie Kennedy reports. PGP Group, which trades as Plant Grow Pick, is an approved employer under the Pacific Australia Labour Mobility or PALM scheme, employing about 1,200 Pacific farm workers and abattoir workers. The company went into voluntary administration last October, owing $4 million to more than 2,400 employees. Under a deal struck to save PGP from collapse, workers will be paid out, but the ATO has agreed to forgive $12.4 million owed by the company. And 150 other creditors, such as accommodation and transport providers, will get $0.48 in the dollar. The Fair Work Ombudsman and the Victorian Labour Hire Authority are investigating. Australian Workers' Union National Secretary Paul Farrow says the AWU has been aware of issues with PGP Group dating back to 2015. I speak to our officials around the the country in different regions and um, we've had some interactions with them where there's been uh, 
you know, concerns raised dating back to 2015 uh, around underpayment of wages. And we've had some instances where we've recovered wages on behalf of, of workers. So there's some, there's some early signs there of, of problems. Employers who work through the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme need to be approved by the federal government. Do you think the standards for being uh, sanctioned as an approved employer by the federal government are strict enough? Look, I think they are. I think what we're seeing now is the trouble of what happens if they don't adhere to that standard. And that's probably more of the question as to, you know, we've got a company that's been under a little bit of a cloud since 2015. Uh, they now put themselves into voluntary administration uh, with debts around $28 million from what I can see. That's a pretty dark cloud question would be what happens from here as far as monitoring and and I am pleased I must say that uh, on one hand that the governments that the departments are working with the employer to ensure that there is ongoing work that we're not just displacing because we are at the end of the day talking about thousands of workers um, and by the looks of it um, you know all of those workers will receive the monies owed to them so that's a positive but what, what steps is the government then taking or the department taking to ensure that this is just not uh, an, another instance or there's not another another cloud waiting around the corner for, the, for this to happen again? So I think it's really about making sure that there's auditing and ongoing checks uh, to make sure that the status is being maintained. A spokesperson for the Department of Employment and Workplace Relations said in a statement, the department continues to closely monitor this situation. Uniting Church Senior Social Justice Advocate Mark Zernzak says he believes PGP Group has improved its workplace practices since 2015 and it would not have been in the interests of workers for PGP Group to have been allowed to collapse. Certainly our experience would be that PGP did change over time and certainly uh, the feedback we picked up from the ground was that they had improved in the way they dealt with workers. And I would say the the good thing about PGP, I guess, this time round was they did actually... uh, our understanding was that um, they didn't simply allow themselves to fall over without letting letting people know. So that you know there were we certainly knew from workers on the ground that they'd been alerted to there were some risks and therefore action could be taken to prepare in case you know those workers found themselves without an employer. Whereas another employer who left the program, Links Employment, uh, left you know, hundreds of workers were left in dire circumstances and in desperate need of all sorts of community support, which was highly undesirable. So the the PGP case has at least been much better managed and part of that has been as a result of the the owners of the business being more considerate of of, of the risks to their workers if, if they simply cease to operate. When PGP Group went into voluntary administration in October, PwC was appointed as the administrator of the company. Their task was to comb through the company's finances and make a report to corporate regulator ASIC about how creditors could be repaid. PwC raised a number of concerns in their report to ASIC. I put some of those concerns to PGP Group Managing Director Adrian Knight. My first question to Adrian was when workers could expect to be repaid the money they were owed. Well, as I said, I'm not I'm not really going to make comment about the PwC report. You need to take that from them. But there's a, a process known as a credit and trust and, and all of that guarantees they get repaid. And, and that's the process that we'll be working through. 
Okay. Um, as soon as possible is the answer, but that's the process. Now, I know you said you can't comment so much on what PwC has said, but I, I guess it is, you know, this is a company that you that you work for. So maybe you can comment from that perspective. One of the things they pointed out was, it, they said in their report, we have concerns about the accuracy of the values of payroll and the related party no, receivables. I think they say they may have. This is a direct quote from the, their statement. They said, we have concerns about the accuracy. They also say, we believe the value of employee entitlements about their concerns. I, I can't really comment about their concerns. I can comment about our performance and I have done. The, the other thing they said was that the the CFO, that's the Chief Financial Officer, advised that upon his commencement with the company, he observed numerous inaccuracies in the company's financial records, which had but, particular impacts yes, on balance sheet that's items. A, that's a quote in the PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, report and uh, uh, you'll have to ask them about that. Is that, a, is that an issue that the CFO raised uh, with you or, or other people at the company? No, we're, we're in, uh, very comfortable that our financial um, statements are accurate as of today. And, uh, you know, we're really moving forward post-administration to, again, make sure that we're providing many hundreds, if not thousands, of jobs to Pacific workers who need that employment and to help our customers and our farmers who have been in need of that kind of worker. The Fair Work Ombudsman and the Victorian Labor Hire Authority have both confirmed that they're investigating PGP Group. Can you guarantee that if they find there are payroll inaccuracies, you'll you'll make sure workers are paid that money back? We always make sure workers get what they're due. That's exactly why we're in business and have been for as long as we have and why so many workers continue to come back to PGP because they know it's centred around the workers and our customers. Uh, there's there's plenty that's been tremendous about PGP. We've had this hiccup, but we're absolutely moved through it and we're now moving forward, supported strongly by the workers and by our customers. You say it's a hiccup, but the the debt that um, PwC calculated was $28 million. It's quite a large amount of money. Again, I'm, I'm not going to go into the, the PwC report. You'll have to ask them about that. That was PGP Group Managing Director Adrian Knight ending that report from Elsie Kennedy. Well, wet weather across Victoria and New South Wales has made hay production a challenge this summer season. Colin Peace is a Victorian-based hay analyst with Jumbuck Ag, and he says the unprecedented weather conditions has disrupted the hay market and demand for certain types of hay has plummeted. He says the persistent rain will likely result in a lower quality product for farmers and buyers in the southern states. It has been exceptionally wet. I think the um, rainfall figures for particularly December have been two and a half times typical monthly rainfall figures and already there are many parts of Victoria and southern New South Wales that have had two and a half times their total January rainfall in the first half of the month. So it is quite unprecedented. Green throughout a state which is normally very much um, browned off in January. Clearly, a lot of green grass pasture growth is uh, is prolific and, um, and hay demand has, uh, has plummeted. Have you got any figures to demonstrate that? It's all anecdotal, this type of material, but speaking to 
hay farmers, they're saying that um, normally they would get um, some orders at this time of the year for hay and um, the the inquiry, particularly for loads going north to New South Wales and Queensland, those those inquiries have just plummeted since the rain started in November. Having said that, you know, the deliveries of uh, vetch hay and loosen hay both north and south are continuing, but the the demand for roughage hay, like oaten hay and pasture hay, that's the that's the hay that's really feeling the pinch now. That um, there are you know prolific volumes of uh, of pasture growth everywhere. So, Colin, have you seen a season like this before? There's been wet years, obviously, and you know everyone's making big comparisons between this year and last, which is the the first thing that comes to mind, but. Um, of course, the the big big wet last year came a month earlier and finished a month earlier. So it's uh, what we've got here is uh, is extraordinary. I mean, there's been big wet years in the past. Obviously, um, early 20, 2011 was a was a very wet year as well. It's incredible to see this sort of thing stretching out as it is, and it's you know there's still forecasts for more rain throughout. Uh, particularly eastern Victoria and southern New South Wales, you know, during the week. So it's, it's not, exactly, not exactly over and done with yet. Speaking of forecasts, we've been hearing a lot from farmers across the state uh, airing their frustrations about the Bureau of Meteorology's forecasts, both for El Nino, you know, people were preparing for a dry <laughs> summer period and also uh, just some commentary around the Weather Bureau not being able to accurately forecast for the week ahead. Have you been hearing those frustrations as well? I think there are um, problems with the way information is interpreted. It's not a binary position. You know, It's not wet or dry. There's always probabilities based around whether it's, it is an imperfect science. Um, I think that's fairly obvious, um, but it's, it's something that um, cannot be taken too literally. And Depending on who you speak to, there would be farmers out there this year who were incredibly grateful that the Bureau was forecasting El Nino as early as mid-March last year and they've taken steps to um, get ready for that and prepare for it. But um, it's something that um, is highly complex but probability-based and um, if it's a 70% chance of El Nino, which it was, there's um, a third chance that it's going to be fine which proved to be the case. So it's complicated. It's early in the year. All the markets and commodities are starting to rev back up. So what are your predictions for 2024 for the hay market? There'll be some caveats that will come with my response, but certainly from this perspective of the year with the rains that we've had and the the grass that's there, everyone is flush with standing feed. Summer crops of the brassicas and other crops in south of the divide will be um, will be going ballistic, particularly with the humidity that we've got at the moment. From here, the next major price direction is going to come from the timing of the autumn break, which is is the classic thing that will determine hay prices, how steep they might go, and uh, where things might go in winter. But um, you'd have to say that there would be ample hay stocks currently to get most livestock producers through the year unless there's something really radical that's going to upset supply and demand. But uh, it's pretty hard to see it from here. But um, certainly the hay export sector is underpinning the prices and demand at the moment. 
they'll be keen to buy any quality hay that's out there. But uh, the weather, how cold it's going to be in winter, that, that'll be the next, uh, the next step price direction after the, um, the timing of the autumn break. Colin Peace, hay analyst with Jumbuck Ag, speaking there with Jane McNaughton. Well, the drop in lamb and sheep prices took many by surprise last year and the sudden upswing in prices is almost just as surprising this year. At a sale yard in eastern Victoria this week, prices were up by 50% on a month ago. Fiona Broom went out to check out the first sheep sale of the year at sale in Victoria to find out if the trend is expected to continue. Hey, anyway, let's get down to business there. Hey, good pen of lambs up, day. There you go, set your money for them today with 188 to... And I got 80 then, 80 up, 80 out, 80 over. Hit, 180, 180 go to... Right off the bat at the lamb sales here at the Gippsland Regional Livestock Exchange, it's clear prices have taken a major turn on last year's record lows. There's about 1,200 lambs on offer from those heavy lambs that you just heard there through to trade and light lambs plus a handful of mutton. And producers who were selling or just listening in say the results are a little unexpected, but they're certainly welcome after last year. I'd like to wish you all the best for 2024. Righto, there you are, pride of place, the Collins Lambs out of Woodside, ladies and gentlemen. They roll on a few pens and singles, ladies and gentlemen. As we get a little bit lighter, they start to pen them all together. There you go, good pen of lambs, aren't they? Fair bit of weight there too. Set your money mark. mark. Come on for them, 170, 70, 65 or 60. Got out of it, 161. Two, three, four, gone now. Yep. Five, six, seven, eight. Here with me. 68, the money you're going now. Wait. 69, 71, 72, 72, 172. Quick, Dana. Wait, yeah, well, I'm going to waste it. Here's livestock manager Morgan Davies. Yeah, no, first sale back. Um, very, very positive result. We all know it's been trending a little bit dearer, but it's bouncing off a pretty substantial low. Uh, so to get some sort of more value for your lambs, it's certainly, certainly uh, very pleasing, heading in the right direction anyway. What kind of prices were we getting today? Look, let's go pre-Christmas. Pre-Christmas, a lot of lambs selling, you know, carcass weight, $5. It was hard to get more than 120 for a heavy lamb, 120 130 in Gippsland, um, with $5 a kilo to five fifty being about the range. Uh, we get past Christmas and, um, you know, now we're seeing lambs making $7 to $7.40 or $50, um, which is certainly a, it's a good result from where we were for sure. Yeah, certainly six months ago we were having a chat at Bansdale and I think prices were low as sort of $40 a head or something around that time. Yeah, it wasn't very exhilarating. But no, it's certainly changed and it's just classic supply and demand um, when the spring runs. Uh, with lambs, a lot of lambs come all at once and everything starts to slow down. Um, everyone's, there's still, you know, a lot of uh, requirement for lamb. It's just there's less of them to buy in the marketplace. So it's certainly um, trending dearer, which is good. But we're coming off a very big low. I probably want to emphasise that. It was pretty tough going for a lot of cockies uh, through most of last year anyway. Is it a case now that the prices have come good or is it more that just the, they're just better than they were last year? Uh, the requirement for lambs, um, a, a massive sell-off of stock. It did get pretty dry in various parts of Australia uh, middle of last year, East Gippsland being one of those places. But it certainly was it was dry. It uh, didn't help when there was massive promotion um, of an El Nino, which probably hasn't necessarily occurred, which played into a lot of uh, the meat works and processors' hands, really. So certainly, um, I think, the unease about the weather... Uh, flooded the market with lambs um, at very innocuous times for those lambs to be absorbed. So they, it got hard to sell them, yeah. 
Yeah, there was certainly a lot of chat here amongst the farmers while the sale was going on that the rain came as a surprise and that perhaps they wouldn't have made as many sales last year if if they'd known the rain was coming. Yeah, it's a classic example of um, what you don't know, you don't know. Um, I think, you know, we can blame various things, but, yeah, I, I, I think with a solid season, it usually helps nearly everything, including uh, mental mental health as well. Do you expect this trend to sort of continue over the next week's, months? Oh, yeah, we do. I think there'll be a hiccup along the way. You know, a lot of lambs will come at one, one big rush again at some stage. Usually that happens, occurs in about February. Whether or not that does this year, I know there wasn't a lot of lambs returned to the uh, borders feed, feeding lambs to run on for contracts into the middle of the year. So I do think that there probably will be a shorter supply of lambs. So that should indicate that price uh, will stay like this or might even get a little bit brighter. That's Elders Livestock Manager Morgan Davies speaking there with Fiona Broom at the first sheep sale for the year in Sale, Victoria, where there's been an increase uh, in prices up 50% off a very low base for sheep producers, which will be welcome news after a tough year in 2023 and tough seasonal conditions. And uh, it looks like those land prices seem to be turning around and some good news on the outlook for the rest of 2024. This is the Country Hour on ABC Radio. It's Josh Becker with you on the Country Hour today. It's great to have you company. Coming up on the program, the latest on a clean technology that's turning CO2 into building materials and growers are owed more than a million dollars after failed sandalwood plantations. We'll hear more on that in about 10 minutes' time. But first today, uh, livestock theft has been a big problem for producers in recent years, but new technologies are being tested to help solve cases. In one of the most brazen cases of this type of crime, around 700 sheep were stolen last year from a central Victorian property. Dr Kyle Mulrooney from the Centre for Rural Criminology at the University of New England says testing livestock ear tags fitted with a GPS system is also using artificial intelligence to find solutions for farmers. The um, Centre for Rural Criminology here at the University of New England explored a series tag. And this is a smart animal ear tag. We ran a mock theft of sheep that were tagged with series tag with an actual live police intervention. And we wanted to see if the information that this tag could provide us with would promote and prevent the theft of stock. So the tag does two key things. One is accelerometer data. And what that is in short is it can tell us about the movement of the animal. The other thing it does is it provides us with location data, so using low-orbit satellites. So we apply so that to... you're getting the, a GPS um, read on them? Getting a GPS read on them, yeah. So if you apply that to crime prevention, what that is is, for example, if an offender was mustering the cattle, you'll get a notification of high movement. That should encourage the farmer to act, to call the police. The other is you can set up boundaries in your paddock. And so if the cattle breaches that boundary, whether it strays or is it in fact stolen, you'll get an alert uh, telling you that uh, the cattle has uh, breached the boundary, in which case uh, you, of course, can call the police. The other aspect of this is that it requires no hardware or software other than the tag. So the farmer can actually share this link with the police the police can open it on their phones, on their computers, and they can see the data from the tag in real time. So you report, as we did in the stock theft, uh, the mock theft, 
the cattle being stolen. And the police can actually use that location data, use that GPS data to track it. So in our case, they were able to intervene in the theft on three separate occasions. They, of course, were also able to recover the cattle within 20 minutes of its arrival at its final destination. So you've been conducting some kind of mock thefts or, or experiments, and they've proved to be very successful. Is this technology, has it been rolled out in the real world? Yes, it has. Yeah. So I understand the company is, is global. It's being used on farms in Canada, in the United States, uh, as well as, of course, across Australia. It's an Australian company, um, but global application. Is this something which is um, financially feasible for you know all farmers who run cattle or sheep? Yeah, I mean, there are varying aspects to that. It's it's expensive relatively because it's expensive to produce. It's utilized for a variety of reasons in addition to theft. But it really comes down to sort of dollars and cents. If you look at the cost of stock, if you look at stock, I remember reading a couple of months ago of a, it ended up just being a, a bull who strayed, but the bull alone was worth thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And so to protect those kind of investments and assets um, is increasingly important to farmers. The other thing is you don't need to tag every single animal. And so, for instance, in this mob of 700, if you had set 10 tags, even if you had one tag, you would be getting that information. You'd be able to see that that particular animal or those 10 animals were being agitated. With the GPS data, in a mob of 700, the likelihood that the crooks would see a couple of tags that look different, you know, maybe unlikely, and you'd be tracing that with GPS right now. You know, we'd know where it is if they weren't caught off. If they were caught off, the crooks would have expended greater effort to do so, taken more time, but we also would have been able to be alerted to that right away. You know, and and for instance, in this case, you think about these big trucks it takes, it's not a very quick thing to load 700 sheep. You can do it fast if you have some skill, but it's going to take some time. So if you're getting a high activity alert from these smart ear tags telling you, listen, something's going on with 10-year sheep because they're moving really fast and they're moving very different from their baseline. That is, they're moving very differently than they normally would. You should go check or you probably would go check or you call the police and you have a great opportunity to actually catch, especially these large-scale theft events in the act. And, and assuming, and I presume that uh, you know all tags can be removed, but if a tag is removed, it just becomes stationary. So you also know something's wrong, and that, so that in itself is is important. Just checking. I mean, the university doesn't have any commercial relationship with this company, does it? Not formally. They funded the research in part in relationship with the police. Now, another emerging technology which which is fascinating is facial recognition for for cows. I mean, I think it's sometimes known as uh, Facebook for cows. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so that um, comes out of actually some PhD research done here at UNE, and now it's with the company called Zware. And the the actual product is called Stocktake, and you're you're absolutely right. It's a a version of Facebook for cattle. And what that is, is that it uses um, AI technology to identify muzzles in particular. So it'll look for small variations in cow muzzles, and it can identify What's the a cow muzzle? based on that. A nose, a cow's nose. Right. Yeah, so what it'll do is a cow's nose is, is, is as distinct as a human fingerprint. And so these cameras can pick up on that distinctiveness and differentiate a cow from another cow. And so 
if you take a few photos of the cow, you will build up a database with its unique identifiers. Yeah. So this technology is being applied with an app, which should roll out. It's in um, pilot phase right now with farmers using it and growing that database. And so what you would do in practice is a farmer would have this app. They would take pictures of a particular cow on their phone, uh, identify that particular cow with a number or however they would, and that would forever be in there with the capacity for uh, facial recognition. And what would be the practical application of this technology in terms of either preventing or solving theft? In this case, it allows for recognition. So when these 700 sheep turn up on the other side of Australia, we would, if you were to apply this technology, you'd be able to recognize that, hey, that particular you doesn't belong here. It's in fact from Victoria. And we know exactly where it is. One of the problems police run into actually is recovering stolen stock and not knowing where it belongs. Where does it go? They could have been tagged inappropriately, their tags removed. There's a variety of variables there. So also just having that capacity to be able to trace back to farm and reunite the farmer with their stolen cattle is another uh, benefit. Fascinating. So, so is it fair to say that we're using AI to prevent or solve uh, th- this kind of crime? Yeah, in this case, it's um, yet yeah, the utilization of AI technology through imagery. You know, the same kind of facial recognition that you'd run through at the airport is being applied to cows and crime prevention. That's Dr. Kyle Mulrooney from the Centre for Rural Criminology at the University of New England, speaking there with Damien Carrick on the Law Report on RN. Dried Fruits Australia Chair Mark King says unfavourable weather conditions have slowed the supply of dried fruits worldwide. Mr King produces sultanas at Pomona near Darling River in New South Wales. After not being able to harvest a crop in 2023 due to flooding, he told Eliza Balage he expected another challenging harvest this year amid heavy rain. The crop after last year with disease and everything wasn't terrific, especially in the old sultana types. And the rain that we've had, you know, which has been anywhere from 30 to 40 mil or better in the storms a week ago. And then we've had another 10, 10 or 12 mil, depending where you are, scattered throughout um, St Rosia last night, yesterday afternoon. And of course, all that hasn't helped the um, sultanas. A lot of them split. A lot of them have started to drop, go rotten. So we needed some wind, but we haven't got any wind. And today we're forecasting the odd shower, but it's very humid again today. I know the far western Victoria have particularly copped a lot of rainfall, but have you been hearing uh, issues from uh, dried fruit growers in South Australia as well? No, we haven't got a lot over there, but I haven't actually spoke to any of them, but I'm pretty sure they'd be in the same boat. I mean, anybody that's got the newer varieties, the rain hasn't been too bad. Like we've got one called Sun Musket, Sun Glow, and I've been looking at them on my farm here. They are fine. Selma Pete, it's fine, but the old Sultanas, yeah, I don't think we'll be picking them. We've got about 65 acres of them. I don't think we'll be picking them. There wasn't a good crop on them. Now with the rain and the humidity, probably there's only going to be maybe a third of very little there anyway. And yeah, you, you were mentioning that there just won't be as much to pick because um, I've been hearing there'll be yeah possibly some shortages of Australian dried fruit on the shelves uh, this year. You know, Is that something that you're expecting to see as well? Oh, for sure. I mean, the processes and the supermarkets 
struggled to um, find enough dried fruit last year. They had to import some, which is you know, really disappointing that we couldn't supply. I mean, not I don't. I'm quite happy that the um, processors do import it. At least it keeps the Australian name going and what have you, and keeps people eating dried fruit. Better than not having it there, but yeah, we won't be able to. I don't think we'll have enough this year. Australia consumed somewhere around about thirty to forty thousand tonne of dried fruit. Even on a good year, we only grow around seventeen thousand. So there's always some exports coming in, but the last two years, you know, it was seven thousand tonne. And I don't. Well, the last year was seven thousand tonne. This year, I don't think it'll be a lot more. How much more has had to be imported in recent years to meet that shortfall? Not in specific numbers, but I know no, they'd be they'd be importing three, four, five thousand tonnes of dry fruit. What has this meant? I mean, I know the, the the quality and the varieties that people get from Australian grown fruit compared to imported fruit can be quite different. Yeah, I must admit the imported stuff around the world or the export stuff from around the world that comes into Australia now is on a lot higher quality. I was over in Turkey at the end of last year and they're processing plants and they actually do different runs for Australia. The processors that are bringing the dried fruit in or the agents, they actually ask for some higher higher standards than just a normal product that they do. And the processing plants over there were telling telling me that they have to do um, special things for dried fruit to come into Australia. It has to be cleaner, it has to be run through the machine twice, that type of stuff. So the consumers are going to are getting the best that they can get apart from Australian dried fruit. With uh, possibly more imports on the cards and, and shortages of Australian dried fruit, is this like how is this likely to affect the consumer? I don't think it will that much, actually. I mean, the whole thing, there's a shortage of worldwide. When I was over there, I was in Turkey, there was a um, conference on with all the dried fruit industries there. And usually worldwide, it's about 1.2 million tonne of dried fruit. Dried, this is dried grapes. I've never seen it much, a lot higher than that or much lower. But last year, it wasn't only Australia that had bad years. It was also the big producing countries like Turkey and the US. And there was only 880,000 tonne of dried fruit produced last year. So from that point of view, there's a shortage worldwide now. So this scarcity, so it's not driving up prices though? For, for um, farmers has, or consumers? It has overseas. The farmers overseas have got higher prices. The prices haven't been released in Australia for this year. It'll be interesting to see how they are. I can't see them going backwards. Hopefully they go forward a bit. But yeah, just simple economics 101, supply and demand, and you know, it just depends on how much is there. And at the moment, there's not a lot out there on the marketplace. Australia seems to have yeah, quite a big appetite for uh, dried fruit that doesn't seem to be slowing down. In fact, I've heard from people there's been a bit of a resurgence from home cooks to cheese platters. But yeah, why do you think the demand for dried fruit yeah, seems to be growing? And I've been hearing more, more farmers being encouraged to supply. Well, first off, I mean, it has got all the health benefits with it. Um, it's got more antioxidants and um, cranberries and many other ones. I mean, it's been around for a long time. It doesn't go off and it's, it's a good quality. I mean, we all grew up eating little packets of sunbeam fruit. <laughs> I don't think it did any of us any harm. If anything, it was a great, great thing, better than a, a um, chocolate bar or something like that. But no, there has been a resurgence on it and there has been more going in the ground. On a normal year, we should be able to get back up around the 20,000 tonnes. It's just that these last two years have been bad and this one here doesn't at the moment. Unless the weather clears up, it doesn't appear to be a, going to be a better year. And uh, for those who might not know, um, yeah, when when is um, uh, grapes for for dried fruit uh, expected to be harvested, and when's that sort of key production period? 
It's February and March. I mean, people will start cutting some of the new varieties. I know we'll be cutting some of them. So you cut them and then it takes about three or four weeks to dry. So we'll be cutting them, the early varieties, towards the, in the end of January, maybe next week. And then we'll keep cutting until we finish, which will finish by the end of February. By then, we'll be already harvesting the early stuff and <laughs> all going well and not running. You should nearly have it all off the vines and in the bins by the end of March. Dried Fruits Australia Chair Mark King speaking there with Eliza Balage. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio. The world's largest producer of Indian sandalwood has left landholders across Australia's north in more than a million dollars of debt following the downfall of their managed investment scheme projects. So was the whole thing one big Ponzi scheme? Alice Marshall has this story. Sitting in the Ord Valley, located in the East Kimberley of WA, hundreds of thousands of sandalwood trees stand in waiting. Their future is in limbo after a December KPMG report found the schemes they were planted for weren't commercially viable. The findings prompted Sandalwood Properties Limited, the body responsible for the MIS plantations managed by Quintus Forestry, to lodge an application to wind up their sandalwood projects planted from 2007 to 2016. It's, it's almost as if this was a planned exercise by them. It may not have been, but it, it's certainly starting to appear that way. Quarter Mentha worked with Quintus on the last takeover when they washed out shareholders, and now, now they're working with them to try to wash out MIS growers. That's Robert Boschhammer, one of the landowners who's been left with mature sandalwood trees on his property, for which Quintus Leasing is no longer obliged to pay him lease fees because the company has been placed into administration. The administrators, as he mentioned, are Cordamentha, the same team Quintus used in 2018 to recapitalise as a private company following allegations from short-selling firm Glaucus that the company was a Ponzi scheme, resulting in the crash of their share price. Now, the same administrators are in negotiations with landholders like Robert Boschhammer regarding whose responsibility it is to now deal with the trees. Yeah, we were chasing them up for lease payments for two months overdue, and then they, they kept begging off, the CFO kept begging off, saying they were doing this study, and if we could just hang on for another week or another two, and then it was another two weeks till they got this study to decide where they're going. And, and then... Before we had a chance to, to do anything and take action, they then, uh, they then put the company in, in administration, which means that we've got no, no power as lessors to, to try to take the sandalwood back and manage it, take the land back and decide what we're going to do with it. We just have to sit there in limbo while they, they um, muck around and work out what they're doing. Quintus Leasing is a subsidiary of Quintus, used to lease the land for multiple investment scheme plantations. Robert Boschhammer says they owe him $300,000 in outstanding lease payments and costs of upkeep on the land. He says it'll cost him a further $5 million if he was to remove the trees himself. It's a path he doesn't want to go down. I, I just hate to see what's out there now, what, what, and some of it's really quite good. Some of it's very poor and should be ploughed out, but some of it's really quite good. I'd like to see it being given the, the chance it should have to actually succeeding and we have another successful industry in Northern Australia. Administrators Cordamentha wouldn't comment on the process. Managed investment schemes were introduced by the Howard government in 1998. 
They were aimed at encouraging agricultural diversification following the decline of the local forestry industry. The encouragement came via tax incentives, which allowed investors to deduct their investments from their taxable income. University of Melbourne Professor of Finance Kevin Davis said the special tax concessions for agribusiness MIS investments induced unsophisticated investors to make risky investments. We all know that we focus on the present more than the future um, and the fact that you can make this investment and uh, uh, deduct the, the amount against your current taxable income uh, and therefore reduce your taxes is a, is a plus just in the way people's psychology operates basically, that they discount the future. Quintus raised $248 million in upfront fees between 2002 and 2016 from more than 21,000 investors in its MIS Sandalwood. The whole notion of the way in which these managed investment schemes are operated uh, is not very sensible, that they're operated under what's referred to as the responsible entity model, whereby the mob of people, Quintus in this case, for example, as a company, uh, who market the the managed investment schemes and operate them uh, as a responsible entity are also supposed to put the investors' interests ahead of their own. And you've got to ask yourself, does that make any sense? In my view, it doesn't. I mean, because often there will be situations where um, the interests of the investors in the management investment scheme are not consistent with those of the responsible entity. And in the examples of the forestry schemes, if they outsource the maintenance and operations of the forests to someone else, that someone else is likely to be a subsidiary of the, of the responsible entity company and the price at which they outsource those services. You can bet, you know, I would say you could bet your bottom dollar. <laughs> mm. There's not going to be the cheapest possible one available. It's important to note Professor Davis then referred to Quintus as the responsible entity for the MIS schemes, which is not true. The responsible entity is Sandalwood Properties Limited, on which Quintus CEO Richard Henfrey sits as one of the three board members. There's an obvious choice of if, if you were trying to cut back the supply going onto the market, uh, to keep the price up, uh, which are the ones that you uh, you pulp? It would certainly be at least worth asking the question why are they pulp in the MIS schemes rather than some of their own products. Quintus Chief Executive Richard Henfrey said the structure of the MIS system in which investments occur during tree plantings only exacerbated the oversupply of sandalwood that prompted SPL to wind up the MIS projects. But to Professor Davis's question as to why Quintus wasn't considering removing any of their own trees from the market, Richard Henfrey said it wasn't that simple. Well, and I'd, I'd probably start by saying um, that Quintus Forestry wasn't a party to the decision to apply for a winding up of the, of the schemes. Um, that decision was taken by um, Sandalwood Properties, which, while it's a subsidiary of Quintus, operates entirely independently uh, and with an independent board. Um, but I do accept that... Um, the likely outcome of the winding up of the schemes is that a chunk of that um, uh, resource will be taken out of the market. Um, but I think that's a, uh, it's an unavoidable, an unavoidable consequence. I asked Richard Henfrey whether he thought there was a conflict of interest with him sitting on the board of both Sandalwood Properties Limited and acting as the Quintus CEO. Yeah, you know, that's exactly why the, the um, SPL board is majority independent director-led. Um, um, so it's only three directors on the SPL board. Two of them are, are ind- completely independent of Quintus, uh, and then there's me. 
Um, but, but you know, every time that we have met to consider any decision, we have put the interests of the investors absolutely at the forefront of that of that decision. I think you're right to point out the potential conflict, but we have been very transparent about this. Um, you know, the potential conflicts of interest are, are you know the historic. They go back to the setting up of these schemes, and the growers knew knew all about them. Richard Henfrey, the CEO of Quintus, sending that report from Alice Marshall. The head of a New South Wales clean tech company says she's been energised by global climate discussions at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland this week. MCI Carbon was invited to attend the event after being recognised as a leader in the climate space for its work transforming CO2 into building products and materials. Co-founder and Chief Operating Officer Sophia Hamblin-Wong says she's been learning more each day about how technologies would work elsewhere in the world. Ms Hamblin-Wong spoke with Amelia Berners-Sconi from the streets of Davos after day one of the forum. It's been a quiet and electric energy here. Most of the heads of state have arrived and are all doing their presentations, but also bilateral meetings. And uh, definitely climate action is at top of mind for most people. And so I think it's, yeah, it's been pretty amazing. What's it like for, you know, I guess in the global scheme of things, a relatively small Aussie company to be over? With all of that, what sort of discussions have you had, the networking that you've done so far? Yeah, so MCI Carbon is certainly one of the more, uh, the smaller early stage companies compared to all of the the extremely large global companies that are represented here. Um, But one of the reasons why we were invited to be here is that we do represent the voice of entrepreneurship, innovation, disruption, and change. And already it's only been one day, but I've attended sessions. Um, like I went to a session by John Carey for the um, the First Movers Coalition for Clean Technology, which is like uh, representing 110 global CEOs all calling for more action on climate change. What they're doing is really um, coming together and then um, creating demand signals on um, on industry to say that they they want more action on climate. They would um, buy goods and um, interact in an ecosystem that had low carbon materials and uh, adoption of clean technologies. And so um, that was just the first session I did this morning. Uh, then I've been uh, attending a, a number of different uh, speeches by uh, like the Premier of China and then the, the head of the European Commission and uh, most of the the key um, heads of state have g- delivered addresses today. And um, I think it, it's quite interesting because right now the world is going through so much turmoil, change, war, uh, inflation, a lot of competing demands and priorities. And it's been very interesting to listen to the different speeches by those people. And so a few more sessions, the week is young, I suppose. What else are you looking forward to that you think will be really lively conversations? Well, at the moment, I am uh, standing in the middle of the street in Davos uh, in a road blockade because Alexander Zelensky is going to dinner right near where I am. Um, There is a crazy amount of uh, 
of uh, security everywhere. There's snipers on the roofs, and uh, I I had thought that I might go and uh, watch some addresses by some world leaders, but actually. The thing that I'm most excited about is uh, connecting with other innovators and global industrial companies that are being courageous and brave in what they're actually going to do to achieve net zero, not by 2050 at the latest, but you know earlier than that. I'm really, really excited to meet with people who are getting stuff done and not just waiting to do the minimum that they can um, and um, waiting for governments to legislate. I already have had a flavor of that and met probably 10 amazing climate champions in my time here over the last day. And I can just tell that the next three days of the forum are going to be uh, more of that. It's going to be ultimately very energizing. And uh, I think I'm going to come away and MCI Carbon will come away from the forum with new ideas uh, on how to collaborate better across countries Sophia Hamblin-Wong there, the co-founder of MCI Carbon, speaking to Amelia Bernasconi. Well, Industrial Relations Minister Tony Burke is expected to meet with representatives from DP World today over the ongoing dispute into pay and conditions. Industrial action has been causing serious delays at port terminals across the country, as Stephanie Ferrier reports from Melbourne. The company, shipping groups and certain importers and exporters want the minister to actually intervene and put an end to this dispute, while the union and workers say that this is simply a matter of a duopoly flexing its market power and trying to bully the government and workers to maintain higher profits. And the stakes are so high in this dispute for Australia's economy because DP World is the second largest port operator in the country, accounting for some 40% of all the shipping containers that come in and out of the country. And so any of these disputes uh, that could cause problems for the docks here at Melbourne and also DP World's operations in Brisbane as well as Sydney and Fremantle could end up pushing the cost of those important goods higher, reigniting inflation. And we already have issues with shipping having problems over, of course, in the Red Sea with the conflict there. But this obviously does have a problem for Australia's economy if it continues to drag on. And we are hearing from the unions. They want a 16% pay rise for its 1,500 workers over two years and it has decided to put a stop to bans on certain shipping lines. However, it is continuing with these two-hour stoppages at work. DP World says that that means that it is pushing out delivery times for some of these essential goods between two to eight weeks and that means that there are some 50,000 containers that are sitting on the docks around the country. It says that it's done modelling to show that since October, this is costing the Australian economy some $1.34 billion or $84 million a week, but it's not providing any of the details of that modelling. Now, the Minister does have the power under the Fair Work Act to be able to actually step in and stop terminate any protected industrial action if he decides that it is significant enough to actually threaten Australia's economy. But this would be the Albanese government's first ever attempt to step into a waterfront dispute, the biggest dispute that we've seen since the 1998 Patrick Wharf dispute. And of course, nobody wants to see the situation devolve into that. Stephanie Ferrier reporting there from Melbourne. 
And that's the country out for today. It's been great to have your company. My name's Josh Becker. I'll catch up with you tomorrow. For more rural news, head to our website, abc.net.au forward slash rural.